Everybody wants to laugh Ah, but nobody wants to cry I say everybody wants to laugh But nobody wants to cry Everybody wants to go to heaven But nobody wants to die Hello, everyone, and welcome to On Location. I am your host, Jared Cowan. Today we are on site, high above the 405 freeway at the Getty Center, which is one of the premier art museums in the United States. And today we're going to dive into the locations for two films that are part of one of the greatest pop culture film and TV franchises ever created. First, however... I want to tell a quick story that somewhat relates to the location we're visiting today. Back in 1997, uh, I came out uh, of a film and the locations of it left a lasting impression on me. Um, And I'm not talking about LA Confidential or Boogie Nights, uh, though those were uh, hugely influential to me. Uh, No, I'm talking about the Rowan Atkinson starring comedy Bean the Movie. And the film uh, follows the exploits of Britain's bumbling Mr. Bean as he travels to Los Angeles to preside over the unveiling of the famous painting Whistler's Mother at an L.A. art gallery uh, that somewhat resembles the location where we are at today. It's a art gallery uh, made of a, sort of a futuristic design uh, with geometric glass structures. And over the last few days, while I was studiously reimmersing myself in the world we're here to discuss today, I wanted to rewatch Bean, and I couldn't find the DVD at the any L.A. area library, funny enough. I couldn't find it. L.A. Public Library, Burbank, Glendale, L.A. County. You know, and I love the library, uh, so I wanted to check that out before I resorted to uh, renting it on Amazon. And I happened to walk past a Goodwill store up the street for me, so I figured I'd walk in, and by some small chance, they would have a copy of Bean the movie. Funny enough, they actually had a copy of Mr. Bean's Holiday um, sequel, and then I kept looking and looking, and uh, I found a two-pack of Bean and Johnny English, and I opened it up, but Bean was not in there. Uh, one disc was missing. Only Johnny English w- was in there. For whatever reason, the universe did not really want me to see Bean the movie um, upon researching this. This impression that was left on me was that the art gallery in Bean the movie was the Getty Center, but um, later on I actually rented it on Amazon and it was not. It's actually a private location uh, in Malibu. The art gallery in that movie is called the Grierson and we are at the Getty today, so I certainly feel like there's a, a bit of a, a reference to, there to the Getty Center. And the Getty Center opened in 1997, uh, was designed by Richard Meyer, uh, and that this opened uh, two months after being the movie came out. But um, today we are here to talk about the location from Star Trek, specifically J.J. Abrams' 2009 reboot and its 2013 sequel, Star Trek Into Darkness. And admittedly, I'm more of a Star Wars fan than I am Star Trek. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of that has to do with me being born in 1980 and certainly the huge uh, merchandising campaign that Star Wars had influenced the little boy of that era. That being said, I I like Star Trek very much, um, though I'm definitely not a Trekkie. But upon revisiting these films and some uh, episodes of the original series, I'm reminded what I like most about the series, and that's the exploration of new cultures and the ingenuity that comes from different kinds of people working together. My two guests are part of the locations team that worked on the J.J. Abrams-directed uh, Star Trek films, 2009 Star Trek and 2013 Star Trek Into Darkness. I'd like to welcome my guests, Steve Warniecki and Scott Trimble. How are you guys today? Good morning. Good morning. Thank thanks, you, Jared. Thanks for coming. First, are you Star Trek or Star Wars fans? I'm both. I Equally. Equally. I grew up with both of them, but uh, a lot of my earliest memories are watching Star Trek, the original series, as a kid when I was five or six years old with my mom who got me into it. And then I, re- being, I remember being super excited when I was 10 years old and Star Trek and the Next Generation premiered. Uh, so my entire childhood was wrapped around Star Trek. I remember seeing uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, when it came out in theaters. A couple, I saw it a couple of times in theaters when I was nine years old. Um, and, uh, and a little piece of trivia about myself is that I was actually named after Montgomery Scott, 
from the original series. Oh, so there's that awesome, too, man. It's funny. The Voyage Home is one of the films that always left an impression on me. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But Steve, how about you? Are you a Star Wars or Star Trek? Uh, same, both. My uh, dad introduced me to Star Trek and uh, the TV series, and we watched it religiously. And then um, uh, when Star Wars came out, it was uh, just, how is that all possible on screen? You know, that kind of uh, joy to see um, kind of your fantasies uh, all come to life. And uh, it was just uh, such a great like Scott said, it's just a big part of our childhood. It was uh, kind of like Star Trek on steroids. It was just like, whoa, what is you know, what is all this, and how did this, how did somebody think of all this, and how did it all come through visual effects wise? So I think that was the biggest thing: is the visual effects really uh, was over the top. But then the, all the series, uh, you just grew up with it. Every uh, couple of years, you expected to see a new Star Wars movie. Are you both sci-fi film fans in general? I love all of it. Scott more than I. <laughs> Scott more, okay. Yeah. Okay. Being fans of this and growing up on Star Trek, was there a sense, any sense of awe when you guys got to work actually on a Star Trek film, or is it just like any other job for you? Uh, for, for me in particular, because of my Star Trek background, it was one of the ultimate jobs and probably still is even 12 years later, you know, having been part of several movies and now the Star Trek Picard TV show, like it's uh, just been incredible to have grown up with it, seen the locations as a kid, studied them, you know, I know all about the history of earlier Star Trek locations and then now to be part of finding the future places, uh, the, the new places and all the newest series uh, is just uh, like a dream come true. It's why I got into the film industry to be part of this kind of stuff. Um, I think we go from movie to movie, but definitely, you know, Star Trek and especially J.J., uh, having J.J. Abrams involved with it was a huge, um, a big step for Hollywood, big step for the series. Um, I think Gene Roddenberry would have been very proud. Uh, it was just a huge um, movie everyone wanted to be on, and so we were fortunate enough to both be on it. And Scott, speaking of having a knowledge of Star Trek locations in general, was there any tradition of shooting Star Trek at practical locations, or was it mostly stage-based throughout the series prior to you working on these movies? I think it's been a lot of both. I mean, they've shot plenty at Paramount over the years and other stage and studio places. But, uh, I mean, all the previous movies went out on location, too. Um, I know that that knowledge definitely came in handy working on um, Star Trek 2009 because sometimes a place would come up, you know, in our research, like like House of the Book in uh, Simi Valley, you know, but as soon as that came up, I was able to say, no, but Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, already shot there, which, you know, sometimes maybe we we were okay with repeating a place, but, you know, oftentimes we really wanted places that were new and different, so that meant that we would continue scouting at that point. Do you both have a favorite predecessor film or part of the series that's your favorite? Seems like all of the, the uh, sorry, the even number movies are the best. Two, four, six, eight, ten. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home, Undiscovered Country, First Contact, and now, you know, the, the J.J. Abrams 09 movie. Those were, uh, were my favorites, at least. Awesome. How about you, Steve? I'd say the TV series, which TV. is so iconic. Uh, it's just such a big part of growing up as a little kid and um uh Wrath of Khan is of course a big one but I think the TV series was probably the most uh influential. You both worked on the 2009 and 2013 JJ Abrams films and then Steve you went to work on Star Trek Beyond and now Scott you are working on Star Trek uh, Picard. Is it unusual for members of the locations department to stay within a franchise the way you guys have? Whether it's a franchise or just a director and team jumping from movie to movie, different genres. I think you try to stay with a team and it doesn't really matter the content uh, just because the you gel so well and you kind of know and expect what they can do. Super blessed to stay within JJ's team. And, um, you know, we did some other movies as well, but uh, that one, especially because it's so iconic, uh, you know, for him and for, uh, for myself, because I loved Star Trek. I find that the, these films are a perfect opportunity to delve into something we've never really gotten into before. And that's kind of the hierarchy of the locations department. You know, you have a supervising location manager, location manager, key assistant, and I, I, and, and assistant and location scouts, of course. And I just want to get a better understanding of 
what each one of those jobs does. What is the difference between a supervising location manager and a location manager, for instance? Well, the supervising, of course, is the top, and he or she will oversee other location managers. Um, but I think they're more directly involved with a lot of the, the studio meetings and um, some of the creative discussions, and then they'll divvy out that work amongst the rest of the team. Yeah, it's true. It's uh, more of a global, because these movies are shot all over the world, like... Uh, um, you know, Beyond was in uh, Dubai, and we scouted all over the world. So the supervising becomes more of a just a lot of meetings, and you're kind of divvying out, like you said, the uh, duties, and uh, and then um, trying to figure out how it's going to work, how you're going to get done, uh, getting the right people in the right positions, uh, location manager wise, scouting, and uh, when you're supervising the whole thing, you have to keep in your mind, you know, budget's such a big deal, and when you go to a different country, you're kind of giving your freedoms to a location service company. And so that's a whole nother thing. Like everyone's like, oof, you know, we're used to our team budgeting, tracking and things like that. Now we're giving that up to a whole uh, location service company that's there. Could be a commercial house, could be just a production company. So that part's a little, um, it's where you uh, your managerial roles get uh, tested um, because you're constantly trying to um, uh, get information you're used to having. And sometimes they don't want to, you know, give it to you. And then when you're um, also supervising, you have to uh, kind of speak a lot of different languages uh, than when you're managing or you're a key, where you're kind of just on your location or you have your base. Uh, you have to speak, you know, camera. You have to speak, you know, producer talk and studio talk. And uh, you have to learn like a whole new um, whole new language uh, than just your little department because so many things are uh, tied to it whether it's permitting, how much liability are they taking on, uh, what can we, can't we do, uh, went to Dubai, what women can wear, what women can't wear, what you can't mm. say, what you can do. So uh, you take on a, a different role when you're supervising and more of a producer type um, in the dem- dissemination of information plus the task you have into that make sure we're represented properly, Paramount's represented properly from this crew that's coming in to take over some little town or uh, out in the desert or um, – a whole new, you know, we had 47 buildings that we scanned uh, by helicopter. Huge disruption to the Dubai community. Wow, <laughs> so yeah. you have to go in and politically it's a big thing. We're dealing with the military. We're dealing with uh, the royal family. So it's, uh, again, it's uh, not something you'd expect as a manager working, you know, at uh, Long Beach uh, Generating Plant. You know, right. It's a little different uh, role change. Steve, you're working on For All Mankind mm-hmm. and you mentioned, you know, space stuff. You know, both of you have worked on a series of... Um, sci-fi or technologically based action adventure films and i'm wondering is that something you specifically seek out to do you know it almost starts to feel like the way we talk about a director being an auteur you know we start to see themes within that person's work and when you get when you look at your resume resumes on imdb you can see a, a, a clear commonality between these things that's something you guys like to work on that you seek out I definitely do. Uh, I enjoy working on them. And uh, when people come to me about the possibility of working on something like that, I am probably a little more likely to make it work into my schedule or to accept the job just because it's something that excites me. Right. And I mean, you did, I mean, even the most, worked on the most recent Star Wars yes. picture, right? I, I did the um, U.S. reshoots and additional photography of Rise of Skywalker uh, with J.J. Abrams again, in fact. Um, oh, right. So uh, that was uh, pretty incredible because, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about Star Trek versus Star Wars, but I've always been a Star Wars fan, too. And here I was on set with R2-D2 and C-3PO <laughs> and Lando Calrissian and Ray and Poe and Finn and all the Crazy. classic characters and the new characters. Wow, that's awesome. How did you guys get into locations? I'll start with you, Scott. I went to UC Berkeley and started out pre-med and moved my way into archaeology, but... Uh, oh. Towards the end of my four years there, I I, uh, did an internship at the Oakland Film Commission, and that was kind of inspired by the fact that I had been (laughs) running a website since 1997 about where movies have filmed. I I used to like take screen captures and print them, and you know go up and down streets and try to uh, try to find like the exact spot where they shot something. And so I documented thousands of movies on this site, and now this opportunity for this internship was coming up. where I could uh, be part of, you know, finding future locations, like like I said before. So uh, 
that was something that really excited me. So when I finally graduated from college, I put off the possibility of going to grad school and doing a PhD in archaeology instead decided, okay, I'm going to try to make this film industry thing work. And I jumped into location scouting pretty quickly. I mean, I still worked as a production assistant, like most people who started out, but every job I would try to introduce myself to the location manager and, uh, you know, hopefully get hired by that person on their next project. That's amazing. What is it? And that's something you and I share, Scott, this love of documenting locations. We've talked briefly about this. We met once before, actually, at the Budweiser plant, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something you, you and I share, this love for film locations in general, just as a fan, too. What does it mean to you to go and visit these places that have made an impact on, on audiences? Yeah, um, there's definitely a feeling that you get when you find that place that was in a movie that you remember so well. Like, uh, I mean, I've retraced, you know, like Hitchcock movies and, and Bullet and other stuff all throughout the streets of San Francisco when I was uh, in college and uh, just, you know, finding that spot and seeing like, okay, this is the place that inspired the director and the rest of the production team. Uh, this is what they were looking at. This is what was just off camera, off to the left and right that, you know, was never filmed. You know, there's a certain excitement about, uh, about seeing those places. And Steve, how about you? How did you get into the world of locations? Um, I was a commercial producer for about 10 years. And then um, the uh, kind of economy went bad in 2007. And um, wasn't really doing much. And a um, friend of mine, which was Becky Brake, uh, she was the location manager. I was living close to one of our locations, the Tustin Hangers. And she said, hey, can you open up the door for me? Which I thought was a key in a door. Uh, lo and behold, it was a 200-foot you know, door for a hangar. It was owned by the Navy. So we started there. And the guy said, hey, the doors don't open. And I go, well, I need the doors open. So he says, well, you're going to need a generator. So I got there. We brought a huge generator. And then the doors didn't open. So we went to the We snuck, me and this guy from the Navy, to the other building. We ran across the property. And we took these giant relays out of their door, brought them back to our door, got it open. Uh, and, you know, slowly this thing opened up. And um, we, they got to see inside. We'll talk about the ingenuity from the world of Star Trek. I'll go. tell you, yep. that's perfect. Yep. I just did it for free. Had to get a generator. What was going to be 15 minutes turned out to be four hours. And uh, so they showed up and um, came out of a van. And they had J.J. Uh, Abrams and Dan Medell. And I showed them around. And then uh, they left. And she called and she says, hey, if you'd like to get into locations, here's your here's your shot. And I said, well, what's locations? <laughs> and uh, I go, but yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll t- check it out for a bit. And then I uh, just loved it. It was awesome. Wow. Uh, great team. Scott was there. Greatest scout in the world ever. <laughs> and um, we just, uh, we had a really good team. It was a really good uh, show to work on, especially for me. And uh, just uh, had great people kind of showing me how to do it in this whole world of movies. I think when you work in commercials, you're like, oh, what's that? You know, it's 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 the next level, but it's a huge jump. How do you ever get there? And so um, just by, you know, happenstance that it happened. And so glad that it did because I just loved it. And it was a great team, JJ's team of people and our location team. Um, Becky Brake was the manager, and that's how I got started. And then and- it just went over. And I'll just say, too, that uh, Becky Brake wishes that she could be here today, but yeah. she's working on a movie in Boston. But uh, she was uh, the boss on these, and she goes way back as well with Bad Robot and J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams. And, uh, you know, yeah, we, we all love Becky, and uh, we wish she was here. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Becky, if you're listening. I'm sorry you, mm-hmm. couldn't, you couldn't join us today, but hopefully on another episode uh, we'll get you on. What is it like being out with J.J. Abrams scouting? Is he uh, excited about the process? What is it like getting to a place with him and uh, seeing his reactions to things? I had the perfect anecdote on that, actually. It was uh, the first time we took him to the Budweiser plant because that moment with seeing J.J. arrive at the location, I'll never forget the way that he was so super excited. to Because it was something that we'd struggled to find, and now all of a sudden here's like the perfect place, and he's running around like a, like a kid in a candy store, uh, you know, trying to imagine all the shots, and, you know, he fell in love with that place uh, immediately. Yeah, he's always got... 10 or 12 projects going on. So uh, normally you'll be with a director 
and you'll scout, and then you're in the van, people are talking. He's um, on a conference call, you know, so back in the corner, jumps right back in, gets excited, talks about it, get in the uh, van, and bam, he's on another conference call. He's pitching something for Lost or writing a scene. Um, even his assistant uh, said, yeah, whenever he's driving, he just hold on, he'll, he'll write a scene and send it in to somebody. So he's uh, one of our... Uh, present-day geniuses that just uh, is constantly working, and he's got a great mind, and um, he's just fun to scout with because he's got so much going on. Within the Star Trek franchise, it's established early on that Starfleet Command is based in San Francisco. I mean, even on, and this was part of my, my deep uh, research this past week of watching some of the TV uh, episodes, and uh, there's the dedication plaque, you know, in the on the bridge, and it says USS Enterprise, uh, San Francisco, California. You know, so it's 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 established very early, and we see it through all the movies, mo- most of the movies, and we certainly see it San Francisco in these films. So I'm wondering when you're going to a location, when you're scouting, like let's say here at the Getty Center or the Oviat Library at CSUN, do you have those directives when you're going there? Do you know that their plan is to put the San Francisco skyline and the Golden Gate Bridge and all this stuff in the background? And how does that factor in when you're scouting a place? Yeah, it's true that visual effects are so huge to movies, especially nowadays that, uh, you know, the visual effects team, you know, often comes on these scouts so that they can provide some input. And we're always having to think about, you know, how something can be changed, you know, whether it's like extending a building to make it look taller or putting different backgrounds in. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Oviet Library. I mean, one nice thing about that is that it does have a vista and like in the northeast direction where you can um, put the Golden Gate bridge in the background and that may have been something that helps you know settle that as the location versus somewhere you know maybe in a, in a downtown setting where you're surrounded by high rises that would have blocked such a view yeah it's always palm trees you're always trying <laughs> right, to, right. It's always damn palm trees so we're always trying to avoid those but um i'd have to say uh, uh from that though they uh, used to have miles of green screen just forever uh, the first movie and then uh, a couple years later it's just a panel and then now it's just a line like a wow. fence or you know some window frame so visual effects has come a long long way and also our duties have changed in that scouting um it's much more of a uh, we're now almost like a background piece and visual effects from like the transformer movies and um star wars they're just uh, it's the visual effects has kind of taken over and the visual effects director is a big player now and what can and can't be done. Whereas before I think, oh, this Oviat will work because we can put that in the background. Now it's like this whole world is going to be created off of this one location. What can we do? And so um, the uh, collaboration has become higher with uh, with um, visual effects. In fact, on beyond the visual effects, uh, Peter Chang and myself shared an office. And I don't know if that was just because of space, but we, um, uh, we, we collaborated so much. It was such a great uh, thing because we had to figure out how to, how to build this world um, up in space. And he showed me what he was after. And then so I tried to find those elements for him where he could build. So that was the 47 buildings we did in Dubai because uh, they were the most modern. So he, we scanned those, then he took those and built the whole um, town of Yorktown in the last one. On a series like Star Trek where um, it would be it, it would be frowned upon, certainly, if anything got out into the public before uh, it made it to the screen, are you guys getting script pages? I mean, are you seeing the full picture of this? Or are they keeping things secret, even to the locations department? There's definitely um, a high level of security. I mean, even on Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, I don't think a lot of the team was aware that it was con, you know, that because that was, <laughs> they were so worried that that would get out to the public ahead of time. Um, but we do read the script pages. Uh, I mean, usually in a secure setting where, uh, you know, we're not allowed to make copies. Uh, you know, it's, the, the paper is printed in such a way that it can't be photocopied. Yeah, they uh, had a, um, uh, what was the first one? Was a uh, Western? 
Right, so right. we uh, had to memorize each location as a Western location. So like the bridge was the saloon. and um, That way if a piece of paper fell out somewhere, yeah. it would say saloon and not bridge. Uh, so well, everything on Star yeah. Trek was Western themed. Every, everything on Star Trek in the Darkness was New York themed. Yeah. So uh, the Chrysler building, things like that. Wow. So you had to memorize two things, where the location was, plus what it's name was script wise and then i believe everybody's script had a certain cup of uh, letters and or sentences that were different than everybody else's so if mine fell into the wrong hands they would know about it and uh, you would be immediately removed if you uh, did anything we had an extra up in um, the grapevine that took a picture uh, on set uh, one of our last days of filming and he posted it with his oh. match.com name and within <laughs> probably uh, three minutes they figured out who it was and removed him from set and sag at the same time uh, they had a team of people just watching the internet to see what was being uh, uh, you know broadcast and not just watching the internet but watching the set we have yep. uh, what's yep. referred to as co- confidentiality PAs who yep. are there to help prevent paparazzi yep. and fans from taking pictures uh, you know you, you can't physically prevent people from going into public areas but you, you know sometimes they, you can block the view with umbrellas or uh, tarps um, yep. and, you know they'll, or they'll try to get them out of our permitted space yeah we only had two breaches I think in one in one movie and one in the other one was at Tustin and one was at uh, Playa Vista or their fight scene. Sky, you are originally from San Francisco? Yeah, I, uh, born and raised up there, mostly in uh, San Rafael. Um, I lived there a little bit after college and started out in the film industry up there. Um, but, you know, you were mentioning earlier about Starfleet being based there. And right. maybe that's the reason, too, why I was so excited about the movies as a kid, seeing like my hometown in these movies set way into the future. And then, you know, on, on Star Trek 2009, I got to fly by, um, in a helicopter over the Golden Gate Bridge to uh, take pictures of it. And I later did Terminator Genesis with that scene with the school bus and the motorcycle flipping mm-hmm. over the Golden Gate Bridge. So, and, I, and, and on Terminator, I also got to go all the way to the top of the towers, um, you know, up that wow. uh, really tight elevator to uh, access up there. So, you know, getting to see my hometown from these other perspectives with permissions that I would only have because of these movies is something else that uh, always excites me about this job. Where are you from, Steve? Originally? I'm from Michigan. Michigan. Small little town okay. in Michigan, yeah. Okay. Now, I want to get into the kind of the architecture a little bit uh, of locations in these films. And um, one thing I heard often on one of the DVD featurettes is that J.J. really wanted to have um, a sense of reality, of real. That was a word that came up um, from a few people who were interviewed. Could you have done the things that are supposed to be in San Francisco? Could you actually have shot things in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, you, we and, we and we did do some filming up there, and we definitely did a lot of plate shots. Um, some of it was cheated in L.A., particularly that chase scene at the end of Into Darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of that was downtown. But, uh, I mean, anytime you can get to go to the real places, uh, it definitely adds to the film. Who wanted to shoot this in Los Angeles? At a time, especially the first one, 2009, when so many productions are in Georgia or, or elsewhere, who really fought or said, we're going to shoot this in Los Angeles? Well, I think a lot of it's determined by budget. Uh, I mean, on Into Darkness, we almost had a San Diego unit. We uh, were going to shoot at the Geisel Library at UCSD and the Salk Institute. Um, but then, you know, cost-wise, it just didn't work out. And um, they decided to put that money towards other units, perhaps. So um, it's partly creative, partly budget. Yeah. I think uh, JJ had a big... Um a big say in the first one, for sure, that he really wanted to just stay in town uh, for this. And uh, I think it was really beneficial that we were there. And then it helped us stay in town for the subsequent one that we had to leave town for the, the last one. And I want to ask you about that. One thing I noticed on the uh, the production logos that come up at the beginning of Beyond, all of a sudden now you have two Chinese media investment companies named at, at, on the front of it, which are not on the first two, at least not with their logo. So does that start to play in the people who are financing this movie? Does that, does that play into where you're now going to shoot? Is that dictating the story at all? I'm wondering if things work backwards. Is the financing dictating actual story because of budget? 
To my knowledge, no. They, um, in general, I think the financiers are just obviously trying to get a return on their money, mm-hmm. and uh, the production studio and the director have a very clear vision and don't want anybody, especially these kind of scale movies. They don't want anyone telling them, "Oh, and by the way, we, you know, we get to tell you part of the thing. We get to tell you where you're shooting." So those two don't usually happen. But I would think that uh, as we become more global and Chinese uh, market opens up. I would think um, there'll be pressure to try to shoot some of it there, try to use some Chinese actresses or actors. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to come into play. And there's a whole world that we haven't seen, which is always great for a movie, uh, that there's these stylized cities that we've never used, which is going to definitely intrigue uh, directors, production designers to kind of travel more overseas and uh, go after these. But in general, I wouldn't say that a uh, financier on this level, probably on a low budget movies they do uh, but on our on this level they're they're not really having a say was there more stage work on star trek beyond than the previous two films it felt like there there may have been than actual practical locations uh in general i would say um because it's space based and uh on the shuttle or on an enterprise, you're, you're, you're weighted more towards stage just because. Uh, it's not really meant as a location movie, and they try to add more just to keep it more practical. Uh, but I would say they're pretty pretty balanced in um, how much stage they're going to do, and then they want to, as much as they can, pull out of that because so much happens on the bridge or, you know, in another spaceship or the warring Klingon ship, mm-hmm. you know, so... Uh, and then when you're in space, obviously you're not anywhere else. So it's weighted that way to stage, but they really try to be practical. Like you said, they really like to be practical and use far less visual effects if they can. The interesting thing that you mentioned, though, is because it's um, space-themed, because um, I'm always very interested in this form form and function, uh, like any type of art form. And you could easily say, well, because these are space-based sci-fi movies, uh, heavily uh, they dig heavily into science, more so than Star Wars. I mean, Star Trek is all about the science and the technology, um, where you could easily say, well, it fits visually then to create, you know, CGI spaces on stages or whatnot. But what I, I love about the first two films is that you are on location a lot, you know, and I love that. What do you think? Do you think that does something, I don't know, psychologically or emotionally for a viewer to see real places? Uh, in a, in a contemporary sci-fi film, audiences too that are so used to seeing just CGI—that's what they're expecting when they go. But yet, now we're seeing the Getty Center. You know, we're seeing uh, the Budweiser plant. We're seeing all these spaces. I guess I think it helps um, ground a movie and uh, gives it that different aspect because uh, you um, don't want to be in space forever. You don't want to be on a shuttle forever, and especially for Star Trek because it's a different genre kind of on its own and there's so many Trekkies that you have to take care of, let's say, and be true to form. And uh, you do not want to go to the wrong place and call it the wrong place. Uh, you want to be true to form. So I think you have to go on location for some of those things and be very clear of what you're trying to say. Uh, like this, you know, the Getty for Starfleet had to be massive, impressive, and one thing you can never find anywhere else in the world, something really unique. So these things are really important to your basic Trekkie. We're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. On Location with Jared Cowan is proudly supported by... My Valley Pass is the most complete online visitor's guide for the San Fernando Valley. For the first time, all the best that the Valley has to offer is just a click away. My Valley Pass also offers four unique bus tours that include famous film locations, local breweries, historic restaurants, and bizarre valley oddities. Follow them at My Valley Pass and at MyValleyPass.com. That's MyValleyPass.com. You know, something I love about the real locations in this film, a lot of them are historic. They're, they're historic architecture. You know, the, the Oviat Library at CSUN, you know, that's from the 1970s. You have, you know, you mentioned, Steve, the Tustin Air, the blimp hangar. That's from the 40s. Um, what I love about these types of architecture in a futuristic movie, it's not the first time something like that's been done. I mean, you look at like Blade Runner, right? Blade Runner came out in 1982. It takes place in 2019 and they're using the Bradbury building. But the difference in years, you know, it's only a few decades. 
But in Star Trek, it's 250 years uh, from now till when those movies take place. And you're jumping back and using these great pieces of architecture. And it almost feels like because the architecture is from, uh, you know, decades ago, it's not something that an audience sees every day on the street, in which case when you see it in a movie now, it almost becomes futuristic. It becomes something that we can imagine centuries ahead of us. When you have this blimp hanger from the 40s, you have the Hollywood American Legion post, the bar in there, um, again, the library, all these places from decades ago. Uh, was there a directive for that type of look? I do remember production designer Scott Chambliss on the first Star Trek was very much inspired by uh, Frank Lloyd Wright or uh, John Lautner. On the second movie, he really wanted uh, brutalist architecture. So, you know, the art department does a lot of uh, research and they, they pull up a lot of different um, styles and uh, pictures. And then those are our inspiration as we go out and scout and we try to find places that are like these or can be made to look like that with either set building or visual effects. So some of our directives came along those lines then from the art department. Well, I mean, I have written down here, of course, I'm thinking of the Ennis Brown house and you say Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, that's something designed decades ago, but now all of a sudden appears in uh, star day 2259. And I love that about the locations in, in the film. Something that we noticed upon watching both of these, the first two uh, Star Treks that you both worked on, is that in the end credits for 2009, just about every location is thanked in the end credits. I have a screen grab of it here. Yeah, Yeah, Um, that was a list that I compiled, and I was really grateful to Paramount for uh, including all this, because often those names will get dropped. Often our names get dropped. (laughs) I have also the credits from part from Star Trek Into Darkness, and in that one you have two, two things that are named as opposed to uh, probably a dozen. So I'm wondering if a couple of things um, is that normal to for for a studio to list a lot of the locations, um, and then also what happened between the first one and the second one, where all of a sudden now hardly any locations are being listed, I'm wondering. Well, I think on Into Darkness, uh, the one that was mentioned was the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore Labs. That's and, right. and that may have been uh, contractually required to, which it's often part of our contract to get that in the credits. So that might be why it was the sole place. Um, as for why more weren't listed that time versus the first time, I couldn't say. I mean, the, the studios have a, a lot of rules and there's a lot of people who review it and X things out, so... I don't know where anything changed along those lines. I don't think it's a common practice to thank locations in a, in a movie, in the credits. Uh, you'll thank um, film commissions maybe mm-hmm. or a state that helped you out. Uh, but an actual physical location, they don't tend to do that. There are a number of high-profile locations in these films, the Getty being one of them. Uh, you're shooting at Anheuser-Busch for the bowels of the Starship Enterprise for both of the first two, the first two films. Um, did you ever get the sense that you were allowed into some of these places because whoever was the site rep or managing it was a Star Trek fan? Officially, we weren't always allowed to say what the project was, but sometimes a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink may have helped open some doors. But Budweiser in particular was very cool to get access to because they had never done much filming before. There there was one shoot that I know of prior to Star Trek, which was uh, around 1983, 84. It was in V, which is one of my favorite science fiction shows of the 1980s. And it was just a quick little visual effects plate shot on a small screen TV. But I, uh, that was part of my inspiration for why I ended up going to try to get permission to bring Star Trek there, uh, because, was because I had remembered it from that earlier TV show. And, you know, Anheuser-Busch, they weren't even, you know, originally they, were, they weren't too into it. It took some uh, talking into, I mean, we, we had to go through their entertainment marketing rep. We had to go through their uh, corporate back in St. Louis, Missouri. But I mean, when you watch the movie, there uh, one thing to pay attention is in the the. the bar fight scene where Kirk met Uhura, there's several references to Budweiser. Uh, Uhura orders a couple of Budweiser classics. You can see a Budweiser uh, marquee stuck behind the bar. And uh, those inclusions may have helped pay for, with heavy air quotes, uh, our being able to uh, film at the, uh, the plant for the engineering scenes. That's cool, man. We are in the main entry hall of the Getty Center. And I want to know, where did 
the Getty Center, how did that enter the equation of making the Starfleet Command in Star Trek Into Darkness? The Getty Center also was one that had not done a lot of filming prior. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, the only thing that had ever shot here before was a scene that got deleted from Thor by Marvel. Yeah. You know, they traditionally only allow documentaries or some of their own in-house things. You know, they're they're an operating museum, and it's it's very difficult logistically to allow these movies. But uh, it was definitely something that excited all of us on the creative team very much. So early on, so we uh, were able to come up with a plan that uh, they were able to prove. I think, was it two weekends or three weekends of filming here? Do you remember, Steve? Oh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, we couldn't come during yeah, the week. It, it was, uh, what do they, they close on uh, Sunday and reopen Tuesday morning. So we had 36 hours to prep, shoot, and strike. And uh, I took the night shifts uh, with uh, one of my keys, and uh, we layout boarded for miles and miles and miles. And then we had... Uh, I want to swear, but we had a lot of rain, <laughs> uh, a lot, a lot of rain, and it uh, mushed all of our layout board, and layout board is like cardboard, so this brown river is running across all the limestone. It was pretty pretty gnarly, so we had to wait for it to end and re-layout board the whole thing, And uh, but they were so gracious. I mean, uh, this place was uh, fantastic, and so we uh, literally had Monday, and then on uh, Monday night, we had to turn it back over, so it was pretty pretty incredible. Shoot. What I love that visual effects and production design will do, too, um, is, of course, create sets based on the location. Right. So you have when Spock and Kirk go up in the tower at Starfleet Command and they go into their roundtable yep. meeting, you know, that 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 room obviously looks like sure. the space we're in now. And the stuff you see out the windows looks like yeah. all of this stuff out here. So it's a great... The elevator was right there. And that's another thing I love about putting the set pieces into the locations. And that's one thing I noticed at Budweiser, like you have the elevator entrance. And one something I loved on the behind the scenes featurette was a shot of, because you wonder, you you look at how does Spock go from the bowels of the Enterprise in one, one take, the bowels of the Enterprise into the elevator all the way up into the bridge. And there's this shot that comes up, behind the scenes shot with somebody holding a green screen wall, behind Spock. He's already in the bridge, but follows him into the elevator. Doors close. Green screen gets out of the way. Doors open, and he's all of a sudden right in there. the bridge. But it looks like he's gone from the bows up to yep. up to the bridge. And I think that's, um, I don't know, I think it's pretty brilliant. I mean, even when I think an audience thinks they know what is a, what is a visual effect and what is not, Something like that is pretty mind-blowing. And we also blend places together. Like Starfleet and Into Darkness wasn't just the Getty, but Mm -hmm. it was also Crystal Cathedral, which is now called Christ Cathedral down in Garden Grove. So sometimes you're in one place, sometimes we're in the other place, but uh, it looks like the same location in the movie. Was it because of scheduling, because you were only here for a certain amount of time? Why did you feel the production feel it needed to go to Crystal Cathedral when you have that similar look here at the Getty Center? I think... Part was the logistics. I mean, Steve talked about the tight schedule that we had to film at the Getty, but also just, you know, expanding upon that world. You know, we had several other buildings available at the uh, place in Garden Grove that, you know, would not have been here. So it does give us more uh, creativity as well. That, uh, that funeral scene at the end with, um, where, where they were honoring uh, the fallen, that, that was at uh, Crystal Cathedral. Right. One thing I noticed just upon a recent, I've watched the films a few times over the last week, and uh, I love just the first shot of Kirk and Spock walking out here in the Getty Center, and in the travertine stone is the uh, Starfleet insignia etched into the stone. And I, I don't know why, I never really saw it the first mm-hmm. couple of times, but I picked up on it before, and I yep. love that, just love it. And for Picard, you did Starfleet Command... Uh, well, at least some of it. I haven't watched all of it down at the Anaheim Convention Center. Is that right? Yeah, Anaheim Convention Center was the main location for Starfleet. Did you ever consider coming back here? Um, the producers did inquire very early on about going to the Getty, and I made the call here. And it might have been possible, but just for a TV show to pull off the logistics that we did on the feature, um, it just would not have worked out. So uh, we, we did the, the convention center instead. You can't talk about Star Trek and locations without Vasquez Rocks. And I mean, it's unarguably, it is probably the most recognized location throughout the Star Trek series. And a lot of people know it from 
an episode in the first season called Arena, where Kirk fights the Gorn. Um, but it actually appears two or three episodes yeah. before that one. Um, but you don't see the whole wide, you know, the wide shot of the really famous rocks. And I think not only is Vasquez Rocks a striking location, it's really the first time you see wide shots of a real location in that in that episode. Prior to that, they're creating all these rock formations on stage. You know, they're going down to the alien planet and there's all these rock, fake rocks and things they built. So I think that's also why it may stand out. And, and of course, over the years, it's been used in so many productions that want to create an other, you know, worldly feel. It's an army of darkness, uh, Amazon women on the moon. And uh, one thing that I researched that had shot there, it was actually in the 1931 Dracula. Although you don't see the famous rocks, the shot of Renfield's carriage going up to the castle, that's all practical, but they matted in Dracula's castle in the background. It appears in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, it's used as an homage because they're watching that episode of Star Trek and then Bill and Ted end up at Vasquez Rocks. Um, yeah, and it also appeared in uh, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which was Who Watches the Watchers? And on, on Star Trek 09, I remembered we were originally trying to not do the Vasquez Rocks. JJ mm. was asking for interesting rock places that uh, were not that place, and I found all kinds of really cool places within um, Southern California that uh, could have worked, but we did decide to go with the homage, which I'm glad we did. But then also uh, we added to it. Uh, so it, we didn't just film um, at Vasquez Rocks, but we also filmed in Utah at San Rafael Reef, which is near a town called Green River. And that was just pl- uh, visual effects plates. So anytime you see an actor, it was uh, probably Vasquez Rocks. But we, we did visual effects plates at San Rafael Reef, which is that, that location is like Vasquez Rocks, but on steroids. I mean, it's, it's huge. I, I got to fly in a helicopter over it and through all the canyons. I mean, it was just incredible. And so a lot of the rocks in the movie that are behind Vasquez Rocks and also when the aerial when they are skydiving um, that was all uh, Utah too so they were able to add to it and then um, just a quick side note on Star Trek Picard we shot at Vasquez Rocks but for the first time in Star Trek history it was not an alien planet right. but it was actually Agua Dulce, California which was uh, where one of the characters was uh, living in a trailer so that was the fun twist that we did on that one. What I like about Vasquez Rock's use in Star Trek 09 is it's not only an homage to the original. It's almost, if you really look deep, it's almost an homage to Star Trek 4 because in Star Trek 4, Voyage Home, you see Spock standing on top of the rocks. And in that film, it is Vulcan. And in 09, it is Vulcan. Another striking location in, 09, in Star Trek 09 is the Skyros Chapel. Uh, which is used for that council meeting on Vulcan. And at first, it almost feels like a set in certain shots. But then the, you research it and you find out it's a real place uh, down in Whittier. And I went on the website and one quote that I liked that I, f- I found on there regarding the history of the building was, um, it says, architect E. Faye Jones, a protege of Frank Lloyd Wright, along with partner Morris Jennings, designed the award-winning space to, quote, nourish and express that all-important intangible of the human condition at its spiritual best. And I found that really amazing because when you think about the character of Spock, right, he's struggling with the logical side of his Vulcan heritage and the humanity and emotions of his human side. So um, when I read that, I thought, you know what, this is a perfect place for <laughs> to, to, to be Vulcan, you know, and you really see you know, you see the logic, you see the work of the Vulcan who was making this space. Um, where did that come up as a possibility for a, a location on Vulcan? I don't remember. Do you remember who scouted it? <laughs> I don't remember who scouted that one. No. <laughs> yeah. But striking. Yeah. I mean, as it's, soon as we saw it, it was like, okay, yeah, definitely. And then uh, I didn't know that they were going to put the council up so high. And so uh, I got it, but I was like, it kind of looks like a, you know, cathedral and then when they put them up high it made all the sense made it work can you describe what it's like going into anheuser-busch and scouting that with all these twisted pipes and staircases and all these sorts of things and how big of an area were you allowed to encompass when you're scouting and it says fda 
approved and you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, it gets to be pretty restrictive on our end because you were kind of responsible for the crew and what they can and can't do. Uh, so that part was extremely tough. They did, uh, they were very open to us being in certain areas, but we had to kind of regulate the amount of crew. We had one location which was uh, kind of like a cold pasteurizing, yeah, uh, so it was a yeast, yeast thing, right? place, and it was... Uh, had to be 34 degrees, couldn't be 34.123, had to be 34. So we got to have six or eight crew. Our AD was not happy. <laughs> and uh, we could only take certain people up the stairway. Because and restrictions be, on the lights because of the, yeah, how lights, that affects the temperature. And even uh, dust getting kicked up. To, um, it was just for, quite pretty restrictive. So that portion was very key. But um, that's when all kind of hell breaks loose and Scotty's trying to figure out where the core is and uh, go nuts. So it was very pertinent to have that location. Uh, but the um, the rest of it, uh, I'd say the noise was the most uh, prohibitive um, from a standpoint. So our sound guy was not happy with us that we were there. Uh, but they, yeah, there, there was one it, spot in particular. It was uh, the scene with the, with the water tubes where, where when Scotty accidentally oh yeah. got beamed oh into it. Yeah. That particular room was the loudest at the entire facility. Yeah. Like you can, we, you, we, we're sitting around a table right now. We wouldn't be able to hear each other, yeah. and and the smell of like ammonia or something. Yeah. Mm. But uh, so, but when you watch the movie, because all the sound has been replaced, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. We noticed a lot of uh, a lot of the wide shots, sort of low angles, looking up, and you never see the floor. Uh, it was red brick uh, in the big most of the um, most of it, and then the power center had orange floor, uh, like an orange epoxy. But I think that uh, I would say that because it was red brick, it didn't wasn't a very spacey or enterprisey, or wouldn't you wouldn't put red brick on the enterprise. So I think that would be my guess. We also filmed the scenes there with um, when they find Scotty at the abandoned Starfleet post on Delta Vega. Yeah, because that's something that, you know, we we always know that engineering shot at Budweiser but, and you would, this other place, it's a little more nondescript, but they had this old building, which I think has been demolished since we were there, but uh, we built the the set with um, the the shuttle and um, you know, Scotty's computer station all in this other building that was also on the Budweiser property. There are some references online to one of the locations in Star Trek 09 being at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. Is that right? What was shot at Dodger uh, we Stadium? We did a lot at Dodger Stadium, um, but it was all stuff that were, were sets that we built and green screen and... Uh, we we had the the ice planet stuff um like with Kirk running from the red Delta monster Vega, right? yeah. all that delta vega stuff was at um dodger bit. but we had visual effects plates that we did up in alaska on uh, connect glacier near anchorage um the fight then, scene on top the, of the, the drill, drill bit, bit yeah. and then the um uh all the the after the drill when they dove from the shuttle down uh we had a this kind of dance of uh, like nine condors. We completely covered the ground in green screen, and then they had to stay on their ropes a couple days, like a whole weekend, up and down, up and down, and then we destroyed the the uh, parking lot. Very That's proud weird. of that. If you look from space, you can see an all brand new parking lot that we had to repave. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the when they were flying down, and Olson gets killed because he gets into yeah. the drill bit. Uh, so that flying sequence was there. And that was probably one of our most exposed locations. Yeah. We were talking earlier about confidentiality PAs. Uh, we had helicopters flying over and putting us on the evening news yeah. uh, while we were shooting in the Dodger yeah. Stadium parking lot. Yeah. Now, shooting at Dodger Stadium, does it just, I mean, choosing to shoot all of this stuff there, and obviously it doesn't, you're not shooting it for Dodger Stadium, does it come down to this is a large space that you can control? Well, and I remember we were looking for places that have 360 degree vistas where you can look off in all directions because then there's less for visual effects to have to replace. So for a while we were going to do it at Big Sky Ranch up uh, above Simi Valley, but um, I think the distance involved and, and, and it just didn't make it uh, so desirable to go out there for that long uh, to build all those sets. So they traded, um, you know, the, the security and privacy of going far away, you know, for the convenience of, you know, being at some place like Dodger Stadium that you can get to really easily. You went, we talked about the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory up north in uh, the Bay Area, uh, and that is used as the warp core. Yeah, um, most of the shots of uh, Scotty and Kirk like around the outside, but then once he mm-hmm. actually goes and does the climbing inside right. and kicks it into place, that was uh, a stage. 
What is the process of going to shooting inside a government-run facility? And had anything even ever been filmed there before? No, it was brand new. It's like a $9 billion facility or something. Yeah, I mean, I think they're working on uh, trying to create cold fusion and yeah. make it viable. And uh, yeah, we were the first there and it was there was a big deal. There were a lot of uh, regulations and you know, pages and pages of contracts. Just like any location, I mean, you're going to present the director with a number of options for any given place. What other possibilities were there for this warp core? Or were you, was it, I mean, were they talking about even building it? Or was it always going to be a, uh, a practical location? I don't remember what some of our backup choices were on that. But you're right. I mean, we, we look at tons and tons of places. And, you know, actually, I pulled up in my database, um, you know, all the locations that we scouted on these movies. And it was 165 places total that we scouted on the first movie. But on Star Trek in the Darkness, which was so much bigger, we had over 500 locations that we had scouted. So, um, you know, we, we do have a lot of backup choices in general. I just don't remember what it was on, on that one in particular. The interior of the USS Kelvin at the uh, beginning of Star Trek 09, um, some of that did you do at a power plant in Long Beach? Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Do you know if there was a, a specific reason for going there because it's a different ship? Did they want to give it a different look? I mean, could you have not shot it at, at Budweiser? Or I'm wondering why you go to a different industrial place. The Kelvin is supposed to be 25 years earlier before the Enterprise, so I think it was partly to make it look more gritty than you know the enterprise which was very shiny um we so yeah we we shot the interior of the power plant for the kelvin we also shot the exterior of the power plant for a scene that mostly got deleted from the first one which was on rura pente um it was the explanation for where nero was for 25 years in between arriving on the day kirk was born and showing up when kirk was much older one very well-known filming location you went to is the Greystone Mansion for Star Trek Into Darkness. Greystone Mansion, of course, has been filmed countless times. For you guys, is there any is there such a thing as an overused location? For directors, it is <laughs> uh, overused. I don't I don't think so in this day and age. I mean, they've been filming over a hundred years in this town, and I think most directors are pretty and production designers are pretty. Uh, uh, hip to the fact that hey we're you know this was in this movie this was in this movie but they're always going to make it their own they're going to de- decorate it design it to be their own. Sometimes uh, we would joke around with the director like this place has never been filmed before yeah. even though you know, even though yeah. of course it has, yeah. but it all depends on how you shoot it. Uh, we we shot Greystone not as like a, a, a Bruce Wayne mansion type of place, but it was um, a hospital in rural uh, England outside of London. Um, we also did the, um, the the tiki bar scene there when. Uh, Scotty was hanging out. So you couldn't really tell. It was different than, than it had been used previously. Well, especially the, the bar, right? Because was that downstairs at the bowling alley? Yes. Correct. The famous bowling alley from There Will Be Blood, of course. And you would never know that that's actually in the background of, uh, of that scene. Well, here's another interesting part uh, where we blended stuff together. Um, all the Iowa scenes from mm-hmm. uh, the first Star Trek was um, outside of Bakersfield mm-hmm. up in Kern County. And in particular, the scene when uh, young Kirk steals the Corvette and crashes it off mm-hmm. the um, cliff into the rock quarry. That, uh, that rock quarry obviously doesn't exist outside of Bakersfield. So that was a blending of the, the rural countryside there where we, we, we did the car stunts and then the quarry itself was Rock of Ages in Vermont. So we did plates and uh, over there and put it into the scene that we shot here in California. I love you guys going over to downtown on Grand Avenue. And not only is Grand Avenue just a great looking place, but it makes sense to be in San Francisco, right? Because it goes slopes down yep. towards Fifth yep. Street. So it's, uh, it's a perfect, uh, perfect choice for that. The Tustin blimp hangar that you mentioned earlier, Steve, that's a really interesting location. And I'm curious, why do you think it's important to go to this huge space and bring the crew there and bring set dressing and set pieces there as opposed to doing it on a, on a stage? And I guess what, what's more expensive to, to do a visual effects shot like that or take the whole company down to Tustin and shoot in a real place? That 
location was great just because the scale, it was aged. And so we tried to give, you know, different perspective of years. This was the old, now we're creating new. So I think uh, just the scale was the big thing about that place. So aged that you can't even go into it anymore. Yeah. Uh, that particular yeah. hangar is off limits. Uh, yeah. There's still a, another hangar there that you could use, but not that one. I would probably say in 2008, it was more expensive to do visual effect wise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, far less expensive now, but the, uh, I think the, the scale of it, you can't find like a stage is limited to 150 feet or something. And this thing was 1200 feet. So the scale of it. So we had two real shuttles and everything else was a cardboard cutout. Uh, but when you look at it, it just looks like it goes on forever. So that scale, you really can't buy. Um, and, uh, I don't think depth of field was so good back then as far as visual mm. effect and things. So having the practical and then seeing 900 extras is something you know, visual effect will probably never <laughs> catch up to. And when 900 people are coming at you, uh, like running and they're all in their Starfleet uniforms, you're like, holy cow, this is pretty awesome. Uh, it's just, uh, takes you back to being a kid and, uh, really puts you in the scene. So those are the fun things when you're kind of totally surrounded by the shuttles and all the people and you're right there in the middle of set and then Leonard Nimoy comes out and you're just like, whoa, you know, yeah, too much. Crazy. Yeah. Scott and Steve, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me today here at the Getty Center. I had a lot of fun kind of going back and re-immersing myself in the world of Star Trek. And everybody listening, you can come and visit the Getty Center. They are open every day except Monday. Admission is always free. You have to pay to park, but admission into the museum is free. You can get more information at www.getty.edu. And to all of you, thanks for joining us on location. Live long and prosper. Yeah.